Uh, all right. So why don't you kick it off, Tom? And- you know, well, I, I, I thought um, it'd be good to start out with Dominique giving a self-introduction since uh, you're starting a new role and uh, this is an opportunity to establish some personal branding for you. Okay. Yeah. So I am currently doing usability research uh, as a vendor at Microsoft, and I'm supporting the Azure machine learning um, and AI Microsoft AI platform broadly um, by performing usability tests and other qualitative methods to help improve user experience and just improve the products in general. Is that usability for the data scientists interacting with those tools? Is that the is that the goal? Yeah, mainly the data scientists and developers that are, you know, in the broader sense that are using these tools. So those are unique animals. I remember, you know, when I was computer science, we called it before we called it data science. I was like a Vim user, which is a console-based text editor. So I imagine things have changed quite a bit for the culture. Um, And it looks like you're a data scientist as well. What do you like to use and what do you think the community likes to use as far as interacting with the platform? Well, we have to plug VS Code, right? Since uh, I I know I was trying to figure out like how many plugs am I going to put in here? Yes. So of course, VS Code. Um, I am a big fan of Jupyter Notebooks for the quick ability to, you know, test out some code and experiment with different methods, different approaches uh, before I'm really ready to commit to one. And it's also a great collaboration tool. Jupyter is a favorite of ours. And Brian and I had a uh, kind of a nascent startup that never went anywhere. And one of our only fans, uh, Kai Kelly, I believe he's pretty uh, major contributor of Jupyter. So big fan here. Yeah, in fact, I mean, Fernando Perez uh, and John Hunter were, John Hunter was a Chippy member, Chicago Python user group, and he showed us first IPython, which was like Python shell with color. And we were like, amazed. Wow, there's color. This is fantastic, which eventually evolved into IPython notebooks, which evolved into Jupyter. So that's kind of a user story. But is that something that... Um, you're finding census on that people typically, I've seen a lot of criticism against Jupiter too, is that, you know, it's a little too loose. How do you, how can you put that in production? That sort of thing. Are you getting that sort of feedback as well? Yes. That's usually the biggest uh, criticism is that it doesn't play well with production. There's, and more and more uh, I've seen in talks is trying to take the data science work and translate it really well and make it flow well into production because um and it's also a sort of a it, it, it's a reflection on where we are in general in terms of um you know ai readiness a lot of companies a lot of data scientists uh are in the experimentation phase where you're trying to you know, figure out what kind of methods are best for the challenge at hand. Um, 
But, you know, due to miscommunication or just, you know, a lot of different failures, a lot of models are not getting into production. So there's a lot of emphasis on how do we translate all that and, and, and really get it to that last mile. This sounds like um, people ignoring the fact that it takes a team to deploy a model and expecting somehow that a standalone data scientist in a Jupyter notebook is just going to market on their own. Right. And it's, that's not the case. And there's been a lot of hype around data science and not rightfully so. Um, I think the, the responsibilities that lie in the data scientist uh, role are, are very important in terms of trying to um, <clears throat> find value in, in data and being able to clearly communicate that to business leaders. But like you said, it's not, it's not just that responsibility doesn't just lie with one person. It really is a team. It's, you know, you've got engineers, data scientists, business leaders, all working towards one goal. So the criticism of Jupiter, what's the persona who's presenting this criticism since in the very name of itself, it, it suggests it's for experimentation. It's not for production. Right. And, you know, if I have to take a stab at that, I would say um, engineers who, you know, are are trying to make models production ready and they they have these uh you know large responsibilities on them to make sure these models are monitored and um you know things don't break <clears throat> live well i think passing on a jupyter notebook is not very helpful for them so trying to blend those steps of the experimentation and, and trying to bring out something that will be useful for production, um, you know, is the, is the main criticism. But I think more and more as data scientists learn best practices around production, and then on the flip side, engineers understand what data scientists do and how that can be put into production then, uh, you know, the crossing of those worlds, it will make the workflow that much more seamless. And I'm wondering if the, uh, the actual argument between engineering and data science could potentially have a positive spin. It could be like a good thing, like the engineering's pushing the data scientists to become um, more systematic with their execution. And then you know, the data scientists are bringing the thoughts of exploration to the engineering and the diversity of those roles or diversity in general. You've spoken about diversity in the workspace before um, is a good thing. I don't know. It is because these roles, they are highlighting different aspects of a workflow. You know, you would say the machine learning workflow. And um, one person can't be 
great at all of those aspects. Um, but you need people that are domain as experts in, in different areas of the workflow, and then they can come together and, uh, like I said, make that workflow more, uh, more seamless. Do, do you think your role will involve um, determining for Microsoft's customers some of those workflows? Yes. And uh, so, so part of it is understanding, helping them understand where they're at in the process and where they would like to be. Um, what, what are their, their goals around the, their contribution to the product and how the research can help them achieve those, those goals and, and achieve that impact. Is it that um, everything is a snowflake is, or is there a lot of commonality between what people are acquiring regarding an AI platform? There's, in general, there's a lot of similarity in what people are asking for. And I think going back to my original point is it reflects the readiness or the understanding of where people are at in uh, in terms of AI and under, understanding it, understanding the applications of it. Um, we're still in the nascence uh, in, that, in that aspect. There's a lot to uncover. Uh, and that's why I'm excited for this new decade. I think a lot of, as we become more practical and, and tangible in how we're defining uh, concepts and and tangible with goals, it's going to it's going to help companies, you know, like Microsoft and and, and other so forth, um, become more successful in these in these spaces. So we always yeah. like to um, try to figure out if our guests are generally optimistic or pessimistic about the future of AI in terms of ability to enhance human experience, or is it going to be the robot overlords? Sounds like you're more optimistic. I am, but I'm an optimistic person in general. So I apply that to any, you know, I have that lens for any technology. Um, I, having studied human cognition and, you know, having a sense of our biases and you know, cognitive shortcomings, if you will. Uh, if you think about the way that we make decisions, uh, I the two domains that I like to think of are, are one, you know, airport security. So you take TSA agents and they're, um, you know, watching objects go along the belt. And once they flag something that isn't cleared by security, they are less likely to flag the very next thing, even though the previous item has no bearing on the next. It's a form of, of cognitive bias. You also think of healthcare. Um, you know, a doctor is looking at an X-ray scan. If they find you know, a break or fracture in that scan, they are less likely to find something else of 
another issue because they, you know, it's like your brain says, oh, I, I found something. I don't need to pay any other attention to this other thing. And that can be really dangerous, obviously, in these cases, airport security and, and healthcare. And I think having an AI system can help counterbalance those human cognitive shortcomings. Now, the two examples you gave, Dominique, are they the same kind of um, cognitive uh, kind of circuitry at work, or is it a little different? Because the uh, TSA example, that seems to me an example of a uh, gambler's fallacy, that there is such thing as streaks or kind of uh, cumulative effects of odds. It's getting at a very similar point, basically like that uh, gambler's fallacy where you, know, you, you, you strike and then you don't, either you think you're not going to strike again um, or you're, or the opposite where you're just keep, you keep going and because you, you think that, um, your, your previous transaction, if you will, affects the next one, which is not necessarily true. Right. With the predictive math and probably a good time to explain for our listeners how you got started with the uh, data science and AI, where you started your career as a psychologist or studying psychology. Yes, yes. And fortunately, my academic training set me up fairly well for learning AI, machine learning, and data science. Uh, I designed a lot of behavioral experiments in MATLAB. And so I learned about if statements, for loops, fundamentals of, of Python, um, and I also did a lot of data analysis in SPSS, like ANOVAs and linear regression. So the methods were there. It was just really a matter of applying it to AI machine learning. Um, so I, I got pretty, pretty anxious, if you will, to go from theory to code and, and, and applying these theories to technology. So I left academia with my master's and I joined a company called Dimensional Mechanics as an applied research scientist. And that's where the, you know, I credit the bulk of my, my training in this space. That's where I started to develop you know, classification and regression models uh, using this proprietary scripting language called Neopulse Modeling Language, and that's within the Dimensional Mechanics AI platform. And so, you know, part of my role was, was twofold. One was to build out these tutorials for developers building their own machine learning models, so helping them understand how do you handle audio, video, text data, how do you do, you know, certain transformations? Back in my academic days, I did audio transformations like, you know, sine wave speech and and, and so forth. So that was uh, not too, not too foreign for me. And the other aspect of my role was to help enterprise customers better understand 
where they're at in their their AI journey and how the platform would help them uh, get further. I have to say, I don't hate Matt, MATLAB or SPSS or those, those things. Uh, I have heard, you know, there's been a big movement towards Python and R and um, obviously it sounds like you're a Python user now. How did that transition feel for you personally? And how can you take that and use that experience and what you're doing now? It felt fairly natural. Um, Python is such a, a versatile language and I, I had a, a, a fairly easy time you know, finding a community to learn, uh, you know, conferences like PyData and, you know, you have local communities like Metis and, and so forth. So it's, I think that was number one is uh, having that community to help learn and, you know, go do hackathons and just, you know, off the hand projects to try to get better in it. It, is there a MATLAB community, actually? Wait. If there is, I'm pretty sure there is, but I've uh, I've left those days in academia. I, I think for academics who have a license for MATLAB, it's it's a fine tool, right? So it is, and it, you know, I'm I'm glad you bring that up, bring that up because that's one of the uh, you know, the drawbacks of MATLAB is that it's, it's closed off, you know, subscription, but Python, you can, you can fire it up any, you know, on any system. And, uh, like I said, there's a huge, huge community, not only in Seattle, but, you know, across the country and world. And I think, uh, Jupiter and, Maybe the tool sets that are available right now is um, representative of a lot of great communities working on several different projects that are all contributing to the advancement of ML and for bringing more people into it. There really are. You know, if you check out on GitHub, the, there are tons of uh, open repositories, public ones that you can you can find code on. Um, PyTorch is, is being used more and more, not, you know, not only with, uh, you know, personal projects, but also, I've, you know, companies are, are using it a ton. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where, you know, more and more tools coming out uh, for Python users and, um, yeah, I'm curious to see where this all goes, especially in terms of uh, developing more more AI tools. And it sounds like you really started. If I look back at it, you really started quite a bit in academia. Then you moved, you know, to general data science roles, and then now to Microsoft. And now Microsoft, the reality of it, and Don's mentioned this before, is I think it incubates um, data science in some ways. You can see more of that done. Uh, but it also has a reputation of not being open source friendly. But the reality, the insiders know that actually Microsoft is very friendly to open source. 
um, in empowering that technology. You're using, you've used closed source and you've used open source and you've experienced the community in both. Um, how is Microsoft treating open source right now, as far as you know? As far as I know, they are really friendly with it. For example, with Azure Machine Learning, you're able to uh, take, you know, open source tools and, and connect as you need to. They also uh, sponsor and, you know, support, widely support events that are, you know, encouraging open source tool use and, and education around those tools. So they're, I think they're doing an, an excellent job in that space. And it, it really, you know, there's a lot of uh, marketing speak around in terms of democratizing AI and really empowering developers, but uh, it, the more open source tools there are, um, it, it helps not only the, the general advancement of, of AI, but it also helps those who may not have a traditional background in, in, in AI. They didn't study computer science, but they have a very strong interest and they have um, a lot of talent in this area to build something and, and, and join the community and eventually, hopefully, join AI teams, you know, at these larger companies like Microsoft's, Google's, Facebook's, what have you, to um, make sure these teams are, are, are well represented. I think the irony of it, um, and then if we look forward now, and I hear this all the time, and I'm big in the GCP world and was big in the AWS world myself, is that there is no reference architecture for an AI platform yet. I think a lot of people are working on it. One thing I'm also noticing as people become more cloud native on some of these, they're using open source to get there, but then the end result isn't necessarily open source. In fact, a lot of it AI platform on GCP or SageMaker or Azure is not open source. So I guess I'm wondering from you, what is the trend? Where is it going to go from here? Yeah, that that is, it's tough. And I've been thinking about it really in terms of data, meaning, you know, right now there's a ton of data that is siloed. Not only, you know, it's siloed within the larger companies, but then you take you know a company for example and you know I've known this as a as a data scientist <laughs> it's really hard once you have a project that you're you're trying to work on and you're trying to access data you know it's it's a it's a, a rabbit hunt trying to figure out how am I going to get this set of data how am I going to get that set of data and connect it and so forth so um there are some parallels between the open source, closed source, and then what's going on with data. And, you know, we, we certainly need more data sharing within organizations. How that's going to play out in terms of the broader community, I don't know. There are some, definitely some trickier 
things to consider there in terms of data privacy. Um, but and this really moves nicely into a common topic that comes up across most of our episodes is that AI is really about the people deploying it. And it really requires for us to have good models, to have diverse teams. But even in the case of Puppy, a group I founded in Seattle, um, I think we do a pretty good job of gender diversity, but it's tough turning out a diverse group of people from different backgrounds. For example, we're, we're probably even lacking on Asian American males turning out. And we all know there's not a shortage of Asian American males writing program, but uh, we, we lagged in that, let alone getting other folks. Yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. And, you know, we focus a lot on gender and race, but there's also um, folks with disabilities. There's folks that are older, um, all of these different identities and the intersectionality of those. And all of those folks need to be active in these, these conversations and they need to be put in uh, positions where they're able to influence the development of products. Um, so how do you make that happen? What's the, what's the secret sauce? How can people and for, you know, help that move along that idea so, of inclusion? Such an easy question, Brian. Right. <laughs> no, I, mean, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I think that if you make an explicit effort, it almost, you're almost alienating someone, you know, someone, if you, you know, if you're too explicit about it said, Hey, you know, Asian Americans come to Don's meetup, you know, you can't, you just can't do that. Right. I guess you could, but I don't know if that would work well. <laughs> well, in terms of recruiting, companies need to do a, a better job at uh, recruiting in spaces that are not commonly picked from. So not necessarily your Ivy Leagues and not necessarily in computer science. Um, liberal arts, for example, there are a lot of people that are transitioning into tech with liberal arts backgrounds, which is quite fascinating and much needed because they hold these skills like critical thinking and these you know, well-rounded views of the world. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, hardcore computer scientists don't, but, you know, for example, liberal arts folks are able to bring different perspectives to the table. I think we our time limit is probably well exceeded, but we have, um, we have time for a, like a leave behind. If you want to leave, you know, how to contact you or what you'll be working on or, you know, what you're planning on doing next. Um, or obviously you just started at Microsoft, so I'm sure you'll be pretty laser focused on that. But any leave behinds for the audience? Yeah. So uh, in my s sort of free time, <laughs> uh, when I can find it, I'm always hosting 
events and discussions on mitigating bias in machine learning. So come find me on LinkedIn, come find me on Twitter, and uh, please reach out. And and that's a, another way to stay updated on uh, events that I will be participating in and attending. <laughs>